you followed that reading? Did that frighten the life out of you? I mean, did you get your head around that? Uh, this, this group of people of one mind, uh, one heart, uh, all their possessions kind of belonging to each other, no one in need, some of them even selling some of their big stuff to make sure it happened. I mean, that is kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? Uh, so it might intrigue you to know that there's a, a very strong connection uh, between tonight's Bible reading and Ben and Jerry's ice cream, okay? <laughs> now, that's, that's not because what you're about to hear is going to be somewhat half-baked uh, or come from someone who's a bit of a chunky monkey, okay? That's, that's not that at all. What, what's going on here? You see, the, Ben and Jerry's has got what they call a back story. Are you familiar with that? The way it started, you know, it, it's a great conglomerate now, you know. You can't hardly go without, you know, finding some stuff to buy. But there was a time when Ben and Jerry, real people, were in a real garage in the real Vermont, working to perfect confectionery for everyone. Friends joined in. It was a, an intense time. They were to work through the night. This was the time of energy and focus, and where they built the principles on which the whole of what was to follow was to come. This was the heart of their backstory. And of course... That's true of many other big organizations today. You know, whether it's Microsoft or Facebook, started with a small group of people intensely committed to make sure something happened. And that's exactly what we've got a picture here of in Acts. Uh, the first intense moments of the church that has now grown to be this worldwide institution, operation, body of Jesus. Uh, what we read about was only weeks after the resurrection, a few less weeks after the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's a very intense picture which shows the heart of what we're invited to be part of. Because the principles that ruled the Ben and Jerry empire when it started, or Microsoft or whatever, are those that they want to see infused into the future, which has seen the health and vitality of the organizations. That's true of the church. What Luke is writing for us here is to help us to understand what, what we are to be like. There's, there's something about Acts which, which is more than just a record of history. It's actually a kind of a manual for the church. You'll see it in the way that uh, you've got the, uh, Peter giving his, uh, his, his uh, preach to the, to the Jewish people as a kind of model sermon. Paul giving his address to the, to, to the heathens in, in, uh, in Ephesus, another picture in Athens, another picture of, of how it could be done. So you work through Acts and you find a number of different ways in which it's more than just history, it's a picture of what the writer wants us to understand, how we should do things and how we should operate. And so tonight as we look at the subject of sharing, you couldn't find a better passage because though it's the beginning of something and intense, it lays the foundation of what should be true for us if we're living true to the values uh, that, that, that that church had. So where do we start? Well, we start with the fact that they, first of all, they, you, you read that they had a shared passion. This group of believers, of which we're now the heritors of, had a, sh a shared passion, passion. They were all of one heart. And of course, they'd been through the highs of Jesus' life, uh, the lows of the betrayal, the crucifixion, the highs of the resurrection, 
uh, and here they are. Uh, and it's been emotional, an emotional roller coaster. But wherever it is, they are here, all of one heart. They're together in this thing. Uh, and in a sense, it is an emotional thing. Imagine the emotions of, of, of suddenly seeing your leader betrayed, the one you thought was going to be the promised deliverer. And then the joy of discovering that it wasn't the end. It was a new beginning and a new life and the emotions there. So, of course, they shared one heart and an emotion. They were those who were looking at each other and saying, we're on the same side, we're on for this. There was a bond between them. I'm not sure how much rational understanding they got in detail. I, I think it was probably a bit like this. Forgive the team, but that's what I do. Um, but if you, if you say to the average, you know, the very average, you know, football supporter, so why do you support that team? Uh, you, 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 it's surprising to get a rational answer. I mean, the best they can come is, well, you know, if you live next to the ground, that's okay. Okay, but, but, but more it's, well, my dad did, you know, or my mate did at school, or their man you. I mean, that's basically as irrational as, as, as it goes. And I think there wasn't a lot of deep thinking amongst this group of people. They just were of one heart. Their love for Jesus pulled them together. Their excitement was happening. But a shared emotion wasn't going to be enough. And I think that's why Luke makes it clear in Acts that they were not only of one heart, but they were also of one mind. They shared an understanding. In these early days, the understanding they had was that Jesus had risen. They'd experienced the Holy Spirit come to their lives. And they had the teaching of Jesus still ringing in their ears, fresh. They're the ones who'd heard him, watched him, seen him, and experienced him. Uh, and that was what united them. Their understanding was simple, but clear and focused. Uh, life has become more complicated for us now in a world where we have 45,000 denominations at the last count. I was tempted to say and that's only America, but it's probably more than that. So there's not much of one mind there, you might imagine. And yet, at the core of all of them, there is this core shared belief, isn't there? There's a heart commitment to Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and the relationship they've got with him. And there's a head commitment to what's true about him. I'd suggest that a, a local church, a body like this, needs not only that, but something more. It needs, it needs to be of one heart and mind, but it also, in a sense, has to have one mind and one purpose to know where it's going. And I think that's why we should be particularly grateful for the great work that the staff team, leadership team, and the PCC have done over the past months to create this new vision and mission statement. Um, in a sense, this takes on, you know, from, from the one heart and one mind to how it's going to work out together. Uh, this unites us with a shared understanding of what we're about. And I think it's important to note that this is uh, not just for the leaders or the PCC to get their heads around and understand. As those early believers were of all of, all of one heart and one mind, we have the great opportunity to all be of one heart and mind as we relate to this new vision, mission and purpose statement because it's going to be so valuable to, to the church here as we make our way forward. See, we, we need to move from our heart to our head 
And that helps us to do it. What will it do? It's going to help us shape our praying, our priorities, our strategizing, our plans, and our budgets. So uh, we should give thanks to that in the context of what it is, to share uh, one heart and one mind. But let's get back to Acts for a moment. Because the second thing we see is that they shared what they had. Verse 32 said, No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. For some, this is very worrying, particularly when you have people say, Oh, this is, this is the first issue of communism. This is kind of the beginning of communism, which, which was a, a picture where no one owns every, anything and the state owns everything. You may have it in your house, you may live in it, but it's not yours. This isn't what's going on here. This isn't uh, the beginning of, com- of communism. They actually had possessions, all right? Just like normal people, they had possessions. What they didn't do was say, it's mine. It's exclusively mine. Rather, they were saying, this is mine, but it's also yours if you need it. And, you know, I don't think that's easy in our world, is it? It's not naturally the way we are built. Ask any parent with more than one child how sharing works. You know, it doesn't without a great deal of discipline. And we kind of grow up that way, don't we? We grow up that our treasure is what we own. And what if it gets scratched in the hands of someone else? Yet for those who are of one heart and one mind, uh, this was the normal way of life. Their underlying attitude in their new relationship with Jesus and one another was if you have need and what I've got can meet it, then here you go. And why not? I mean, we're only passing through. Um, so, So why wouldn't we do that? And of course, the other thing they did was the big stuff. That wasn't only just the the way life worked in this company of believers. Not clinging on to what they'd got, but making it available to those in need. There were times when those who had a, a piece of asset that could be used for the good of the community chose willingly to sell it and put it into the hands of the leadership to dispose as needed. And it's worth understanding this wasn't compulsory. This wasn't a compulsory purchase by church leadership, although I think there are times in church leadership where they'd love to do a bit of compulsory purchasing. If you read the rest beyond here, you see there was this incident with Ananias and Sapphira who who sold some land, kept some money back, and Peter had some straight words to say to them, and their end was not good, but essentially he said, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to sell it. But of course, there are times when the goodness of God in the lives of us suddenly makes us go, do you know what? We could do something with that for the good of the kingdom. And the result? Well, there was a great result. No one was in need, all right? God's grace was so powerfully at work in all, there was no needy person among them. I think the most important words here are God's grace. God's goodness, God's undeserved goodness was at work among that group of people. Uh, This kind of harmony and generosity is not the result of human striving, trying to do it. It's the work of God by His Spirit releasing the goodness and generosity of our hearts 
and love for others to make it happen. You see, when they prayed, give us this day our daily bread, they were the answer to their prayers by making the needs of others met. This risen Jesus, present in their lives by his Holy Spirit, had created a unified community that provided a backdrop for the proclamation of Jesus, all right? No wonder, just a little earlier in this, uh, in this passage that Luke writes, describing much what we've said here, he adds the words, and the Lord added daily to them those who should be saved. No wonder people were coming to meet Jesus because they were experiencing a group of people committed to one another with one heart, with one mind, showing sacrifice, showing love, and the leaders particularly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus. What a position to be a preacher in, to have a visual backdrop in your whole community that life dramatically changes when Jesus comes and for the good. You see, the, uh, uh, that generosity needs to be understood. I saw some of it on television the other night. If you haven't yet seen uh, the debt savers. Anyone see that on Friday night or catch up? Aren't it great? Uh, it, it's not exactly what I'm describing here, but it's a demonstration of the love of Jesus in the heart of some pretty ordinary people who make sure that those around them don't get into debt. It's BBC Two back on Friday, do it on iPlay, on catch up, because here, probably the best Christian program I've ever seen on, on British television. And I never thought I'd see the BBC put up with a little caption that said, 6,000 people have come to know Jesus as a result of this. You go, that's the BBC? I like it. But if you get a chance to see that, that's, that's a, an exemplary picture of an organisation who set out to say people uh, should simply not be in debt. And that's where it goes. What's the relevance for us? What's the relevance for us? No one in need was the outcome. They were of one mind, with one heart, uh, and they shared stuff and were generous, and no one was in need. And you almost might say, well, that has nothing to do with whatsoever. Because actually in an in affluent clay gate, the thought of anyone being in need, the way we see it here, is probably pretty unlikely. And if they are, they will hide, and they're hard to find. But in fact, there are, there is a significant amount of need here within our body of Christ. They may not be financial, but they're very real needs. Mine right now is that two Monday mornings time, I've got to find a way to get a, the church small cross which is too big for an ordinary car, transported to the Christian exhibition in Isha. I'm back on the Friday. That's my current need. And I want to tell you, I should not be in need, all right? So, but that's just a simple example. What about the other needs that exist here? I, I love the interview we had with Pippa, reminding us about the pastoral needs. But alongside those pastoral needs, are there, there are others, aren't they? The young couple who need a babysitter for something, whether it's you know, just, just to take an evening out or for something to do with uh, knowing God better. Uh, someone who is having trouble and just needs some shopping. 
someone whose freezer is broken down and needs someone with extra capacity, someone who has not got an extra long ladder and does not want to go out and buy one or rent one in, someone who wants to help with transport. Within a group like this, however affluent and together we may seem we have, there is a mass of basic, simple needs. And they shouldn't be there because we function better without them. So how could, how could we make it work? How could a church like ours make it work? Or how are churches making it work? How are churches making it work? See, first we need to be a one heart and one mind and for the risen Jesus to have captured our lives. However, the reality is you don't share with those you don't know. And it's very easy for us to be in settings like this and simply not to know each other well enough to understand there are needs, small or great. And you don't share unless there's a practical way to make it happen. Now let me be careful here and say it's not my job to make suggestions as to what the church should do. Uh, if I do that, I'd be stepping a long way out of line. We have a, uh, a great uh, staff team and PCC who work on that together. So I'm not about to, to set agendas out or to say this is what we ought to be done. But, but I think it, it is worth just tapping our mind very briefly on what other churches I know have done in order to make sharing uh, and life possible. Um, I, I know, uh, uh, for example, uh, I, I can think of um, a couple of churches I know who actually have within them a small focus team whose job simply is to say, how do we help people in the church get to know each other better? Because that's not the kind of agenda that's going to be on the, the spiritual antenna of, 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 of the church leadership. Yet it needs to be there. They're the people who, uh, who, who finish up coming up with a church weekend where people have deep time together. Um, or a quiz night where you don't choose your own team but you finish up in, te- in, a, in a team you're allocated to. Or social events just for the opportunity to meet and understand and hear each other's story. And then there's the whole practical sharing thing. Well, a couple of churches I know simply have their own closed Facebook page as opposed to the open Facebook page, which is, which is essentially church propaganda and, uh, and hoping a few people will see it. The value of a closed Facebook page is that every single person who joins it as a member can post. It needs a moderator, of course. But it comes to the point where... Um, it's essentially family talking to family. Uh, you're not allowed to post pictures of meals or say where you've travelled to. That's the basic rule that should be on Facebook anyway. But I need a base. I need a babysitter. I need a long ladder. I need transport for a cross. The freezer's busted. Anyone got spare opportunities? Who can sit our dogs, you know? In our home group this week, this is what we learned and we think it might be a blessing and help to the rest of the church. Or this was a bit we didn't understand. Help. Uh, We need some more people to make sandwiches or fold notes. There are prayer needs. So all this at the center of people having one heart and mind to make it happen. Simple ways to do it. So that becomes family, talking to family and meets the need. Let's get back to those first believers You see, uh, they're the Ben and Jerry set. How was this extraordinary lifestyle possible? They were not there of one heart and one mind because they really tried hard to be so, though I'm sure they were trying. 
They did not sell their possessions because it was kind of like the right thing to do. See, it was their vibrant resurrection faith that ignited an extraordinary common fellowship. Have you got that? It was a vibrant resurrection faith that set alight their extraordinary common relationship. It was the experience of the resurrection in their lives and the love of Jesus that caused them to be a different kind of people. And see, the risen Jesus impacted the way they behaved. But there is a backstory to the backstory. The backstory is that they also understood from the words they'd heard Jesus teach that following him was going to come at a price. Think of the words that were still fresh in the ears of these people who behave like this. Words which, if I'm honest, we seldom seem to address. But they're what Jesus taught and said. See, they knew that following Jesus involved paying a price, turning from their self-centered and maybe respectable and certainly me-oriented lives to put him first in everything. And that's God's call on us too. See, they knew Jesus had called them to be disciples in our world, an apprentice. See, Jesus wasn't asking for volunteers, for do-gooders, those who think, aren't you lucky to have me on your side, God? You know? See, their approach, the Jesus approach, is in stark contrast to the one used to recruit soldiers for the British Army some while ago. See, integrity to that advertising campaign to join the army would have been come and die for queen and country. Instead, they use the more palatable message, join the army and see the world. And you know, that's too often how we see it as we come to follow a Jesus. And we end up being people who are nothing like God intends his church to be. See, Jesus was more honest, wasn't he? For these one heart and mind people, these people still had the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, a disciple they knew was someone who would give up their life. And they knew what Jesus had in mind. They'd seen people condemned for crime carrying the cross on their back to their execution with nothing in mind, knowing there was no hope and future other than death. Uh, those who counted themselves. In the same way Jesus calls us to die to our own selfishness, our own ambitions, our own personal priorities, and to put others first. And that includes making sure they're not in need. There was no con missing Jesus' contrasting message. Also, he said, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, you will do as I command. To love Jesus is made visible by our obedience to what he tells us to do. He spoke about forgiving those who do us wrong, turning the other cheek, praying for those who are unkind to us, not fretting about how things will work out, and avoiding a public display when we do good for others. He spoke of the need for you and me to be meek, merciful, pure in heart, and to be those who seek after peace, and a lot more beside. This was the basis of their heart and mind commitment that led to them to be sharing. And it should be ours too. The measure of how much we're willing to share and let go, and it's a challenge, I think is a measure of how much we've grasped how wonderful Jesus is 
and what he's done for us. I think of Paul's words to the Philippians, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be clung onto. We don't cling onto what we've got because Jesus didn't cling onto for what we had. I saw a story recently of a church that had been trying to teach its members what it was to be generous. And uh, in order to illustrate it, uh, at one of the big services, they decided they'd order a pizza. Uh, in, our, in our British terms, it was a £3.99 pizza. It was probably one of these cheese and sauce things. But it was going to be delivered to the church when they were all there. And while they were waiting for the delivery, the church took up a, a collection for the tip for the person who's coming. Now, you need to understand this is America. They tip for everything. You know, when, I, I don't know, I'm probably mean. I would never tip a person delivering pizza with you. I mean, yeah, I've gone down in your estimation already now, but that's, that's where I am. Uh, but uh, the person delivering was Natasha. Um, she came, uh, a bit shocked to see the auditorium where she was and, and so on, and the pastor said to her, Natasha, what's the largest tip you've ever had? And, and she, she, in dollars, she gave the equivalent of eight pounds. So he said, well, um, we've done something special. And he explained they'd taken up a collection for her. And that special offering turned out to be the equivalent of about 680 pounds. This is what it looked like. See, I think we're like Natasha, aren't we? We don't come with much. We don't expect much. We don't deserve much. But God and his grace doesn't give us 680 quid. Uh, he gives his own life so that we can be forgiven and know him. Yeah? So how can we not give our lives back to him in such a way that which we are one heart and one mind and letting go of what we've got and being generous so that no one can be in need? So what's our response this evening? Perhaps as the musicians come, we could... Uh, Think it through. Perhaps you could stand with me. Would you be comfortable to do that?